Welcome to episode 105 of FRT. I'm Mina Lodge of the IIF, and today we're talking about our latest publication series, The Spotlight on Inclusion, which aims to highlight the initiatives that our member firms have been taking to promote financial inclusion through digitalization. Today, we'll be speaking with our guests, Amin Khairi from CIP Egypt and Chad Harper from the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute, whose work in digital financial inclusion was spotlighted in the first two reports of the series. Amin is the head of financial inclusion at CIB Egypt and was a former secondi to the IAF in Washington, D.C., where he worked as a digital regulation policy advisor before returning to Cairo in March of 2020. In his capacity at the IAF, he worked on financial inclusion research and advocacy reports focusing on global digital financial inclusion and actually spoke on the topic on episode 5 of FRT exactly 100 episodes ago. Chad is a senior fellow at the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute and led the research on their recent report on digital global remittances, which was highlighted in our Spotlight series. Prior to joining Visa, Chad worked for the Federal Reserve System for nearly two decades, advising leaders on payments issues and advancing payment initiatives. Amin and Chad, thank you both for joining us today on FRT. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And if I can start with you, Amin, the spotlight piece on CIB Egypt focused quite heavily on the mindset shift from branches to devices, which former CIB chairman Hisham Azal Arab discussed at our digital interchange last year. Now, CIB Egypt has done a lot of work in this space to include the un- and underbanked who had previously been unreachable, especially those living in rural and more hard-to-access areas. Could you discuss some of the key indicators of this mindset shift and the changes that digital enablement makes to people's lives when being included in financial services in Egypt? Yes, of course, Mina. So um, let me first uh, give you kind of an overview on some of the barriers and obstacles uh, we uh, as a financial institution have been facing when uh, reaching the underserved or unbanked segments. Uh, in Egypt. Of course, opening up branches in rural areas is quite expensive. The operational cost of actually running a branch, staffing it with uh, employees, uh, and the risk levels of uh, kind of providing access to credits to people who don't have a financial history uh, is, is very challenging. Uh, so what, what ends up happening is that the branches um, the economic model of running the branch is not sustainable. Uh, and this is why we've we've seen more of a, a shift towards uh, mobile phones. Uh, mobile phones are devices that most of the people have. In Egypt, the mobile phone penetration is over 100%. It's a, a good tool and a, a good, very useful uh, kind of way of reaching the unbanked underserved segments and gives them convenience of instead of having to go to the closest branch, uh, pay some transportation fees, take time out of their schedules to do so, uh, that we bank them through through their phones. Uh, in, in order for that to happen, there are a couple of uh, factors that need to be in place. Uh, some of them are, are already happening in Egypt, and some we are expecting hopefully in the medium to, to near term. Uh, so, first of all, infrastructure, a lot of internet connectivity uh, needs to be in place. Uh, people need to have smartphones. So the, the government of Egypt, His Excellency the Presidency, is actually sponsoring a program which is called Haya Karima. Haya Karima means uh, a decent living. And the focus of that is 
really creating the underlying infrastructure in rural areas, remote areas, uh, roads, water, access to water, electricity, internet. Um, so, so that's happening from the side of the Ministry of Planning. And it's a big, big initiative that kind of reaches the underserved and kind of uh, marginalized customers in, in a very uh, proper way. So once the infrastructure is in place, we've seen uh, regulations is, is the second kind of pillar the country is focused on. Uh, in last year, March last year, the Central Bank of Egypt kind of uh, regulated and mandated banks to establish financial inclusion department and submit a five, uh, three to five year strategy on how uh, these banks are trying to reach underserved and unbanked segments. Uh, and we've seen throughout the, the past year some very positive uh, steps when it comes to regulations and policies from the Central Bank of Egypt, such as a simple KYC account opening form. People can just use their national IDs now to, to open up bank accounts. Uh, previously, people needed to have income proof. That's, of course, not very ideal for the almost majority of Egyptians who, who don't have an income proof Uh, we've also seen uh, regulations regarding uh, alternative data use and behavioral data uh, for assessing uh, customers who don't have financial transactional history. And that's also a very positive indication because it enables banks to use technology, use the phone, create applications, uh, collect alternative data sets, such as, for example, bill payment uh, data or other uh, payments data that people use and create alternative scores to, to reach them. Uh, so that's the, the other very positive step towards, you know, from a regulation perspective. And then finally, uh, there is also regulations concerning agency banking. Uh, so there are regulations issued that banks can now use agent banks. Agent banks uh, are basically third parties that provide banking services uh, related to financial inclusion products. So now you can rely on uh, third-party agents who have a wider presence in these rural areas to kind of onboard clients, address their concerns. So even though the digital aspect plays a very important role in sustainably reaching the unbanked segment through an economic way, uh, still we see a lot of very important human touch, touch points that are important, especially when it comes to onboarding and addressing any concerns that the unbanked or underserved segments have. Thanks, Amin. I like that you highlighted the point of the need for a holistic approach towards inclusion with the public and private partnership, as well as adapting all of these initiatives to actual Egyptians' lives, where you noted that many don't have an income proof, or allowing them to do onboarding from third-party agents to sort of remove or adapt to those barriers. Chad, turning to you, the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute, or VEEI, has done a lot of work looking at digital remittances. And this latest report could be seen as a response to an article that you wrote last year titled What's Going On with Remittances, which hypothesized the changes in remittance flows due to the pandemic and higher rates of unemployment. Now, along with the stronger interest from regulators on the topic, as well as the UN's sustainable development goals of achieving a 3% or lower remittance cost by 2030, 
Could you discuss some of the reasons that VEI and yourself wanted to explore remittances and more specifically the digital enablement of remittances? We and the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute were interested in remittances and remain very interested in remittances because they sit at the intersection of some important themes for us. VEEI was created by Visa as a key step in its ongoing work to remove barriers to economic empowerment and to create more inclusive, equitable economic opportunities for everyone everywhere. So remittances are squarely in scope for this mission. These transfers of money by migrant workers to their home countries are a lifeline for millions of families, as well as a boost to the GDP of many countries around the world. And according to World Bank data, as many as 28 countries receive up to 10% of their GDP via remittance flows. That's huge. And the global pandemic and economic crisis made this issue even more important. This was the ultimate underdog story. In the spring of 2020, many of us believed remittances would decline 20 or more percent for the year, putting families in some countries in peril. By the end of 2020, it was looking like migrant workers were managing to hold remittances steadier than expected. And this spring, actually after we published our paper, it became apparent through World Bank data that remittances had fallen less than 2% in a very difficult year, which was amazing. There's also a payments innovation angle we were interested in. Historically, the cost of sending and receiving money abroad has created barriers, and many money transfer organizations are innovating to offer better solutions. Key among them are digital remittances, which have brought the advantages of e-commerce to remittances. These digitally initiated remittances have proven indispensable throughout the pandemic because physically visiting an office and using cash isn't always possible. These digital remittances frequently take advantage of some newer money movement networks and capabilities. And in addition to being faster and more transparent than traditional remittances, digital remittances are more affordable and secure. So for all these societal, economic, technology, and innovation reasons, we found remittances to be the perfect subject for some of our initial work. And I would add at a personal level that remittances just tug at the heart. As we say in the paper, remittances are born of sacrifice and separation, and it's impossible not to root for the migrant workers generally and for payments innovation to make things easier for them. Thanks, Chad. I definitely saw that come through in the paper, that emotional aspect of remittances. And I think it's really useful when we speak about inclusion or all these initiatives to to bring it back to that personal level. And I think this segues well into a point that was highlighted in both spotlight pieces, the importance of really an all-encompassing digital economy, breaking down the many barriers that span across the process of digital money movement. Turning back to you, I mean, when we spoke about CIB Egypt, including more on an underbanked populations, a key point that you made was the need for, like we said, all aspects of the user's life to be digitally enabled, meaning the vendors and merchants that they buy and sell from would need to accept digital payments, insurance and billing companies as well, among others. This highlighting the broader point that inclusion efforts cannot exist in a vacuum. Could you discuss the future that you see with the digital wallet at CIB Egypt and the impact of full digital enablement, especially to those that were previously on or underbanked? Yes, from, from our perspective, I mean, what we're really trying to, to create and develop is a digital wallet that creates tailored products and services that fit the needs of the different kind of sub-segments of the underserved unbanked segments, right? So 
we're talking about women, we're talking about youth, we're talking about uh, blue-collar payroll segments, and we're really trying to find the, the best use cases for them on that application. Because the more that people use your application, the more you're able to kind of collect data, alternative data sets on people who were previously invisible to, to the banking system. And the more tailored the products and the more tailored the services are, the more people are going to use them. And to be honest, we as a financial institution, we can't achieve this alone. So you have a lot of fintech technology companies who have a lot of solutions that cater to inclusion customers. We as a bank, we might not have this tech expertise to actually develop these in-house. So what we really look at is the different use cases of where we can acquire certain players, where we can partner up with certain players, or if we can build this in-house. And that gets us to the ultimate goal of creating something that people really need and want to help us collect the data. And, and as you mentioned, a very important part is uh, after people use that data and are able to, to have uh, banking products and savings products, insurance products, payments products, and deposit products on their phone, they need an outlet where they can spend that money. And that's uh, through QR codes and POS kind of availability in these different rural areas. So this is something we're, we're also hoping to achieve through our uh, partnership with the Central Bank of Egypt in the initiative uh, of Haya Karima or A Decent Life, where we go into these rural areas, talk to the people, find out what the, the main issues are, what the use cases are for payments and digital finance generally, and create awareness, education, and more importantly, uh, try and create an ecosystem where they can stay digitally enabled and keep their money on these wallets. Thanks, Amina. I really like what you said about the importance of tailoring and fitting to the needs of the underserved populations. You know, understanding that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. You need to have those conversations, provide that education. And as you said, the more that people use it, the more that you can collect that data, create those alternative data sets, and ultimately, for the bank, create better and more scalable inclusion initiatives. Chad, turning to you, in your research, you looked at digital remittances from both the sender and recipient's perspective. And one thing that really stood out for me was when looking from a recipient's perspective, the remittance is very often picked up in cash, which adds up to 100 basis points per transaction, according to your research at VEI. So what would end-to-end -end digital enablement look like for those who are receiving these remittances? What a question this is. It has an easy answer and then a much harder one. So at a, at a basic level, digital enablement at receipt would mean that the receiver has an account or card or e-wallet and can easily uh, open a digital account if they're unbanked, which would allow them to receive and hold the funds. But this alone isn't digital enablement. Uh, digital enablement implies that there's an ecosystem available for the recipient to spend their money digitally. Otherwise, we'll just see the process end with the recipient making a cash withdrawal, which has societal costs. So for a, a person to be able to spend digitally, there has to be broad digital acceptance among businesses in that person's community, which is no small feat in many countries. This means that policymakers must think about many things, some of which are quite fundamental. First, there's infrastructure. 
Um, electricity is a barrier sometimes, though mobile commerce is incredible in that continuously available electricity isn't the requirement that it was before. But you do need broadband, and many countries will need to concentrate on this. 5G will help a lot once deployed. Government-issued ID and digital identity can also be thought of as helpful infrastructure items. There are even social issues to think about. There could be distrust of financial systems or perhaps social or cultural barriers that include religious or gender-based norms about who should be spending money and how. And then there's digital payments acceptance by merchants. Uh, we say in the paper that policymakers must think of consumers and merchants together. Promoting access to digital infrastructure is just as important as encourage, encouraging digital payments use. We believe countries that have driven digital ubiquity most successfully over the last decade have worked to drive adoption on both sides through a variety of tools and incentives. In fact, some colleagues of mine at the Institute are writing a white paper as I speak about how policymakers and the private sector can work together to drive digital acceptance. We hope to have that published in early fall. Uh, back to the issue of getting digital capabilities into the hands of people, the power of virtually issued cards, especially virtual prepaid cards, and advances in digital identity have helped open access and lower costs for fintechs and banks alike to provide solutions to a wider portion of the population in a cost-effective way. So to go back where I started, digital enablement for a remittance receiver means that they can receive funds digitally and then use them nearly ubiquitously in their everyday lives. This is where we want to be, and getting there will require the public and private sectors to work together. Thanks, Chad. I think we can tell already from this conversation that inclusion efforts are very multifaceted and no one institution can solve it alone. And touching on some of the societal issues that you bring up, uh, Hisham, as a lot of the former CIB chairman, had previously put the benefits of digital enablement in context by describing this rural woman who perhaps previously was too far away or in too difficult place to access a brick and mortar financial service. With this acceleration towards digital enablement, she's now able to maintain and control her own finances, ideally leading towards more financial security. We've seen through previous economic development initiatives that empowering women in communities is one of the surefire ways to promote economic growth and stability. So, Amin, could you touch on some of the changes that digital enablement can make for this hypothetical rural woman, but for those in rural areas in general? Sure. Uh, so, one of the main things we look at uh, how to try and empower women, not just provide access to finance or bank accounts, but really try and tailor the products and services based on their needs. And uh, this is a multifaceted approach. So we have several things we're doing on that front. Uh, first of all, uh, we try and as much as we can partner up with Asian banks that have female representatives, because there is a cultural barrier uh, in Egypt and Middle East generally, where the women feel a lot more trust when they can talk to another woman, give out their phone number to another woman and have the products and services explained by a woman. The second thing we're doing at CAB is we have a lot of women who create the products for the women. So, so that you have the same gender knowing and kind of correlating to the needs and wants of the other women. 
so the projects are uh, as much as we can. We try and focus the value proposition uh, for women to be done by women. Uh, and um, the the third thing I would say is, from a machine learning perspective, uh, at the head of data science at CAB is a woman who also has uh, other women, a lot of women actually, on her team. So making sure that there is no bias when it comes to the machine learning algorithms to kind of analyze that data and come up with the right criteria for lending or providing an alternative credit score is also uh, something key we think is going to help us uh, drive the digital adoption. Thanks, Amin. I, I really like that. And the importance of needing a diverse team working on the initiatives really from all levels, top to bottom, whether it's front facing on the design team, engineering team, whatever it may be, really having that diverse team across the board. And Chad, we discussed some of the added safety and security even of digital enablement and receiving remittances. And similar to Hisham's point on the rural woman, Barbara Kotschwar, the VEI executive director, has also highlighted the gender issue of having versus not having digitally enabled finances and the safety hazards that walking to and from a bank holding a potentially large sum of money could bring. So could you touch briefly on how digitalization ultimately becomes a gendered issue and the added level of safety that digitalization can provide? Sure. As we research remittances, we found that the term digital remittances is really used to describe how a remittance is initiated through a digital payment method. However, the vast majority of digital remittances are still picked up from some sort of physical location in cash. So while the sender of a digital remittance is zapping the money across borders from a computer or perhaps more likely a phone, the recipient, often a woman, is picking the cash up physically. And this is a problem. The act of receiving these funds may involve traveling from remote locations, going to an ATM or going to an agent and walking around with a significant amount of currency. There is some sense of physical security in having funds directly deposited into your debit card or e-wallet, which allows greater access to other digital functions such as e-commerce, P2P transfers, etc. And there's a savings dimension here also, enabling women to receive remittances digitally in addition to providing more physical security and convenience helps them to keep more of their own money and to manage it. For example, research from Women's World Banking has shown that women save on average 10 to 15 percent of their earnings despite low and often unpredictable incomes. However, low-income women often face barriers to accessing a safe place to save due to mobility and time constraints, as well as low levels of financial literacy. The research suggested that women can be forced to save in less reliable ways, at home in a drawer or under a mattress, by buying excess stock for their businesses or through a neighborhood savings club. Remittances received digitally can help them store the money they receive. This added physical safety and convenience should not be accompanied by digital insecurity so the digital remittances and methods for receiving them must provide safety, resilience, and reliability as well. To come back to the women living in rural areas of your question, some recent IMF research on fintech's potential for remittances in Central America reinforces that digitization and remittances contributes to lowering poverty and inequality and raising women's access to financial services. The report found that vulnerable households living in rural areas of Central America with young and educated women 
stand to gain the most from fintech innovation in remittances. And this is important in part because, at least in Central America, women-led households are quite a bit more likely to receive remittances in places like Guatemala and El Salvador as compared to their male counterparts. This likely reflects women's dependency on remittances predominantly sent by male migrants. And rural households are more likely to receive remittances in Guatemala and El Salvador as compared to their urban counterparts. So the innovations that have brought us digital remittances matter a lot to women living in rural areas. Thanks, Chad. I think that really rounds out this point that it's not just one hypothetical woman, that women-led households tend to receive more remittances, that they tend to be in more rural areas, and that this isn't really a one-off issue. It's really at the core of digital remittances improving that. And I think that when we look at digital financial inclusion more generally, a point that you have both emphasized today, but also when we've spoken previously working on the spotlight pieces, is the importance for all players to work together to facilitate holistic and inclusive policies. I mean, I know when we had discussed the work that CIB Egypt did in working with third-party agents that you mentioned earlier, and Chad, we touched on some of Visa Direct's work with money transfer organizations. So could you both highlight some of the partnerships that you've had and the importance of working with not just banks to promote digital financial inclusion? So from, from our perspective as CIB, partnership is really integral uh, for this to successfully work for financial inclusion to be as successful as we hope for it to be. Uh, we as a bank, as I mentioned before, we cannot do this alone. I mean, we are good at certain things, such as um, making sure that the KYC process is in order, identifying the customer from an anti-money laundering perspective, from a fraud detection perspective, from a risk management perspective, making sure that customers are not getting over-indebted. But other partners are very useful in other areas. So, for example, agent banks enable us to reach the underserved, marginalized customers close to their homes. Uh, they play a crucial role in kind of onboarding, creating awareness, education, uh, handling any concerns. And from partnership perspective with agent banks, what we look for is not just providing, again, access to financial accounts, but how to empower them. So we make sure that we try and incentivize the agents in a, in a way that kind of uh, empowers women to save more, for example, or not just open up a bank account. So make sure that the, the structures in place and the incentives between us and the, and the partners are aligned. Another partnership which is very important is, uh, of course, with the regulators and having constant discussions on how different policies can help enable financial inclusion. And we've, we've seen a tremendous kind of progress on that front uh, in, in Egypt. And maybe one part we are really looking forward to is the electronic KYC and digital onboarding, which will also help us to kind of uh, more sustainably bank the unbanked segments. Uh, and then uh, the third part of it is partnerships with uh, fintechs and technology-enabled uh, companies, uh, because they have a lot of data which uh, we can we can use, and we come up with a right partnership model of how we can uh, use and leverage that data, of course, with the consent of the clients, and uh, use the experience and expertise from a risk management perspective and a banking perspective to make sure 
that this data is not uh, utilized in the wrong manner and uh, over-indebting the customer. Uh, so, so these partnerships going forward, they're a complex process. They need patience. They need uh, convincing of different parties. But I think everybody's starting to get to get aligned in the role that uh, each of these partners need to play in the ecosystem. I should begin by briefly describing Visa Direct, since you mentioned it in your in your question, Mina. In the remittances paper, we highlight the role that next generation money movement capabilities are playing in, in many digital remittances. And Visa Direct is one of these capabilities. It's a fast and secure push payments platform that enables financial institutions, enablers, and partners to offer person-to-person, business-to-small-business, business-to-consumer, and government-to-consumer payments and funds disbursements. There are dozens of use cases. And Visa Direct can reach more than 5 billion accounts and cards globally, with a goal to expand to reach wallets in the near future in more than 170 countries, so greatly expanding payout and money transfer opportunities over the Visa network. So in the context of remittances, we're talking about P2P, and partners are very important. I'll I'll, uh, briefly cover two key partnerships. When we think of digital remittances, our minds automatically go to digital-first business models. But even the established remittance players are prioritizing digital products. And here, MoneyGram is worth mentioning. MoneyGram has touted its digital strategy and noted that its transactions using Visa Direct had increased 650% year over year in Q4 of 2020. Earlier this year, during an earnings call, MoneyGram indicated that utilizing Visa Direct through their enabling partners was a critical component of their efforts to improve customer experience for providing a frictionless customer journey and fast transfer capability. Here, they were particularly talking about how digital remittances get initiated. They said, quote, debit cards are simple, reliable, and billions of consumers have them at their fingertips. Consumers are used to buying things online using their card, unquote. I love that quote because it reinforces that digital remittances really are a nice analog to e-commerce. In the first week of August, MoneyGram held their most recent earnings call and shared some very hopeful news about the growth of digitally received remittances, i.e. remittances received in bank accounts, cards, or wallets. They shared that from Q2 of 2019 to Q2 of 2021, a two-year period, digitally received remittances grew at a compound annual growth rate of 121%. That's great. Another partner who's doing amazing things is Remitly. Remitly is a mobile first provider of remittances and financial technology for immigrants. What makes Remitly super interesting to me is that they have expanded their portfolio to include additional critical financial services for immigrants, and these capabilities are helping to digitally enable remittance senders. The company worked with a partner bank to introduce Passbook, a modern banking solution that eliminates fees and other common barriers to creating a bank account and introduces new cross-border money transfer benefits. A key feature of Passbook is its digital identification and compliance capability. Passbook accepts forms of identification common to immigrants and their families, such as an individual taxpayer identification number, a passport, and other foreign government-issued IDs, like the matricula consular ID from Mexico. A social security number is not required to sign up for this account. So the MoneyGram and Remitly examples I mentioned are indicative of the type of private sector work that's going on to resolve the pain points 
of cross-border payments, in this case, for migrant workers and their families. Thank you both. So interesting. There's so many exciting and interesting initiatives coming out. And I think personally why these digital inclusion efforts are just so interesting is they really do push institutions to be as creative as possible in their applications. And you really have to think outside of the box to solve this, you know, really multifaceted issue. And I mean, like you said, really knowing when other partners are needed to make those initiatives more successful, knowing what you're good at, what maybe you need some more help on as the institution, and then partnering with people, enabling them to use their expertise and play that critical role. And I'm happy to hear that you think it looks like that alignment is happening. And lastly, looking ahead a bit, Chad and Amin, you both mentioned the need for digital enablement from end to end. So whether it be in sending and receiving remittances or establishing a digital platform for customers of the bank. So are there any major takeaways from your previous work that you'd like to highlight or any forthcoming efforts that we should be on the lookout for? So from our perspective, I think there are a lot of very interesting partnerships that are going to be happening in hopefully the short to medium term. We're on our e-wallet and mobile wallet. Since regulations came out, I think two months ago from the Central Bank of Egypt for allowing banks basically to use alternative data sets, that's a great kind of indication of heading in the right direction. Another another thing uh, we look uh, forward to is regulations are supposed to come out by the end of the year of the possibility of establishing digital banks and how that would look for financial institutions. And we are very keenly waiting on these regulations to come out. And we have a very big interest in establishing our own uh, digital bank to, to, to provide more products and services in a more seamless way. That's two main things, I think. Uh, which will provide a lot of different use cases that um, hopefully will will kind of highlight the importance of partnerships and, and how this ecosystem can all work, work together. I can offer a little preview of what's to come also. So one of our key findings from the remittances paper is that digital remittances and money movement innovation are making remittances more efficient and less costly. Using World Bank data from the fourth quarters of 2018, 19, and 2020, we showed that remittances initiated with debit and credit cards were on the best cost trajectory of the payment methods tracked by the World Bank, having gone down 21% over that period. Cash-initiated remittances were basically flat over the period, actually going up a little in costs. And mobile money remittances were down 12% over the period, and they were currently the cheapest remittance initiation method. Though in the paper, we said card-initiated remittances could overtake mobile money in the not-too-distant future. Well, we got some interesting news when the World Bank published a new remittances prices worldwide quarterly report, which compared data from the first quarters of 2019, 2020, and 2021. So it's more current data than we had available to us in our paper. And uh, and behold, card-initiated remittances actually moved into first place for the first time beating mobile money and staying way ahead of cash. So this rapid development has made us eager to stay on top of remittances. So I imagine we will want to update our remittances research and expand on the digital enablement discussion a bit more. And perhaps this is a spring 2022 paper. We in the Institute are also continuing to study the digital enablement of small businesses. Our research into five developing countries late last year showed that small businesses 
who were able to accept digital and remote payments, so think e-commerce there, and who had access to online marketplaces were more resilient in the COVID-19 pandemic than those who weren't digitally enabled. And furthermore, these businesses were more optimistic for the future. By the way, those five countries were Colombia, Brazil, South Africa, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Uh, we're currently expanding our small business digital enablement research into developed countries. So look for something on the US this fall and some other geographies to follow. And we plan to resurvey those five developing countries to produce a one year later type paper uh, to see how digital enablement and business sentiment are trending in those places. That's likely a winter 2022 paper. And I already mentioned that we were working on a white paper on how policymakers and the private sector can work together to drive digital acceptance. So again, look for that in the, in the fall. So you can see we're super interested in digital enablement of migrant workers, consumers, and small merchants, all from the standpoint of how the private and public sectors can partner on achieving this goal. It's an exciting time to be in this space. Absolutely, I agree. It is an exciting time. There's so much to look forward to, and I'll be on the lookout for all of these developments. And thank you both for all of your insights. Now, we've covered quite a few topics here. As we've mentioned previously, inclusion is quite a multifaceted issue. So if I can attempt to quickly recap on some of the key takeaways that most stood out for me. Firstly, that inclusion efforts really cover topics spanning across digital enablement efforts from end to end especially when we talk about remittances, which makes it really a perfect case study for a holistic digital economy. And as you said, Chad, earlier, cover societal, economic, technological, and innovative spaces. Secondly, the imperative need for diverse teams, which I think, I mean, you really drove home that point. The need for diverse teams, ideally everywhere, but really especially when it comes to inclusion efforts. It's so important to meet those underserved communities where they are, tailor programs and initiatives to their needs and wants, and ensuring that that's not a last minute adjustment, rather something that is really embedded in the culture from the beginning. Thirdly, the importance of breaking down what digital enablement can mean when it's done in an inclusive manner. From the small changes to the major impacts it can have on an individual and really the fact that it not just a PR campaign or something that only matters for developing economies. It is a profitable and scalable business plan for banks and other players in the digital economy to be financially inclusive in all aspects of their work really across the globe. And lastly, this brings us to what I think is a really important point that we've discussed already today, that inclusion efforts cannot exist in a vacuum. When we look at remittances, a lot of those key barriers had to do with digital enablement only existing in some steps of the process. And with the e-wallet, it's only as useful as it is accepted as a form of payment to local vendors and merchants. Inclusion really has to be a holistic effort covering all aspects of life for the user. Now, of course, these two spotlight reports that Chad and Amin worked on us with are available on our IF website, as well as the third report of the series, which discusses Scotiabank's innovative use of AI and ML technologies to promote financial stability for their most vulnerable customers. We also recently hosted Scotiabank CRO Daniel Moore on FRT, who further discussed the impact and development of these initiatives. Amin and Chad, always a pleasure, and thank you both for joining us on this episode of FRT. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much, Mina. Looking ahead on FRT, we'll look at the latest trends in Sub-Saharan Africa's world of mobile payments with our colleague Ben Hilgenstadt of the IIF's economic research team. We'll reconnect with Hisham Ezel Arab, the former chairman of CIB Egypt, who we've already spoken about a bit today. Really a great champion of the mindset shift to enable digitalized financial services to profitably reach more people across Africa. And lastly, we'll be discussing Starling Trust's latest annual Copendium, looking at regtech developments around the world and innovations for solving some of the top conduct and compliance challenges. So lots to look forward to ahead, and we hope that you can join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Mina Lodge, and thanks for listening on FRT.